I think we're working in a very reactive climate right now. And that part is harder when you're trying to be creative and thoughtful about the process. I think that it's a condition that we have to deal with right now. And like it or not, you can say, well, I'm not going to work that way or you're going to, you know, you're going to have to wait. But sometimes construction timelines or budgets, they just don't allow for, you know, you to not be somewhat compliant to the project and, and its needs. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the editor-in-chief of Business of Home. Welcome to Trade Tales. In every episode, I'll be talking to interior designers about nurturing creativity, finding their firm's financial footing, setting goals, and finding their own version of success as a result. My guest today is a designer who's using her insider knowledge to bypass the supply chain issues and labor shortages plaguing the design industry today. I can't wait to share it with you, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. Membership has its privileges, and Gaganau's Club 1683 VIP program is no exception. Offered exclusively to architects, designers, and custom builders serving the luxury residential market, the program offers special promotional opportunities, as well as invitations to private events and conferences. Plus, there's no fee to join. Visit gaganau.com US and click on For Professionals to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by SideDoor. Designers, SideDoor is a game-changing tool that helps you transform your business and become more profitable. It features a thriving online marketplace for designers only, where you can buy direct from top trade brands at your price and then let someone else handle all the logistics. SideDoor also features a powerful sales tool that lets you curate shoppable collections from your favorite vendors and then share them on social media, your website, or direct with your clients. Find out more at OnSideDoor.com. That's O-N-SideDoor.com. My mother was actually an interior designer and she had an office in our basement. My mother grew up in the South and she brought a really unique sense of style to a Rust Belt city in upstate New York of Buffalo, New York. And I think people were really attracted to what she brought to their homes and how different it was than what other people were doing at that time. And I thought it was so cool that I got to answer the phone and interact with her clients. It gave me such a sense of purpose and feeling of importance. That's Ramey Calkins. Despite her early ties to design, she chose to intern for a PR firm after college. But the work environment wasn't ideal, and pretty soon, the firm let her go, sending Ramey right back to square one. My stepmother owned a tile and stone business in Buffalo, New York, and she coyly suggested while I was unemployed that maybe I take a trip down to the Ansacks Tile and Stone showroom in Chicago and pick up some samples because they had really cool tile and stone. I went down there and started chatting with the manager and she said, oh, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I was just fired from a job I wasn't being paid for. Why are you hiring? (laughs) That was kind of the end of it. And I was hired uh, about two weeks later to be an administrator in that Chicago showroom. Ultimately, I feel like I was, my design career was in a way born in the sample room and I love that I have that foundation of being in the sample room and knowing what all those materials were and being part of 
the bottom layer really is is the foundation of which I was able to build so much knowledge on. In a matter of months, Ramey worked her way up from admin to star salesperson. The company soon sent her to Denver to establish a showroom in a new market. And as it turned out, Ramey herself had something new to offer the area as well. I was doing a bunch of little projects for friends kind of here and there, people that would say, oh, can you help me with this? Or can you help me pick paint colors? And I was kind of starting to put things together. And I actually had a friend here who lived in Denver, but she had a family summer home in Bridgehampton. So she asked if there was any way I could help her with the tilestone and plumbing. And I thought, sure, I can do that. I can read plans. And I ended up selecting tilestone and plumbing for a home to this day, which I've never seen. I did all of it through plans and talking to the builder. And I guess it turned out beautifully. And my another good friend of hers was building a large home here in Denver. She asked if I would be interested in helping with the architectural materials end of things. And I was not initially hired to do the entire house. I was really only going to be a consultant. And once we got into the project, the clients decided that I would be a better fit than two designers on the project and they ended up hiring me for the whole thing. And it was a very large 10,000 square foot residence here in Denver. And honestly, I was scared to death. I couldn't believe that I was gonna take this on and I was really, really small and lean at the time. And that really kind of catapulted me into realizing, okay, I can do this. I wanted to talk to Ramey about why she's focusing on being a better teacher as she grows her team how supply chain issues disrupt design planning, and why she's tapping vendor relationships to find new solutions. You know, on that first project in Denver, you said you're, you were really lean, but what did your team look like? Was it, it was just you, right? It was just me. I had somebody that did all the paperwork who executed the orders and did the follow-up. And I had an accountant, which I still have, which I always say she keeps me out of jail, but um, somebody to help pay vendor invoices and make sure that the sales tax was being collected properly. So I had really myself and one other person and, and a part-time accountant at the time. That's really brave in some ways. I don't know that very many people start their business with a team. What made you want to have someone else to help you out from the get-go? Well, it took me a while to actually find somebody else. While I'm really good at being resourceful and managing clients, I'm maybe not the most amazing manager of people simply because I tend to throw everybody in the deep end and not give them any kind of, maybe I'll give them one floaty. (laughs) (laughs) I was very much a learn as I go type person. Mm -hmm. So for me, I kind of almost have to attract that same kind of, you know, employee that wants to jump in is maybe willing to make some mistakes. And I recognize that about myself and I recognize that. And so when I'm interviewing candidates, I'm kind of clear that it's certainly not a a top-drawer corporate environment at all. But it's a cool place to work. We have really cool clients. And I have a real passion for the industry and the design process. Mm -hmm. 
So who, I mean, where did that original hire come from? The original hire actually came from, I had a family friend that I grew up with in Buffalo, New York, who said her friend had moved to Denver and loved interior design and would I be willing to chat with her? And I did and ended up hiring her and she stayed with me for about 14 months. And then she actually um, departed and went to work for some other design firms. And now she's out on her own. The next hire that I had was more of an executive assistant and not somebody within the design industry. Yeah. And I hired a really nice girl who was with me for about three and a half years. And then kind of during COVID, she left and we parted ways. And now I have a new team in place. And again, it just was attracting candidates. Some of it's word of mouth, putting the word out there. Hey, I'm looking to hire somebody, if you know anybody. And I got a couple of referrals from one of my sales girls from Schumacher. And then another one, I happened to be at a cocktail party at my mother-in-law's house and ran into an architect in town that I have deep admiration for. And she happened to ask me if I was in need of anybody. And I was at the time. So sometimes I feel like the universe helps me out with (laughs) helping me find people where all of a sudden they sort of fall into my lap. And I, I think that I'm not afraid to ask people for advice or where they got something or who they might know that could help me out. And, um, because I think that word of mouth is almost often more valuable than Mm -hmm. just say shuffling through a bunch of resumes that you got off indeed.com. Yeah. Yeah. What does your, so what does your team look like today? And what were you prioritizing this time? This time I was prioritizing, of course, an admin that can help execute and procure all the orders and keep that element, you know, kind of off my desk Mm -hmm. because I have a tendency to say, oh, I'll just do it myself. And I end up doing things <laughs> that I really shouldn't be doing. And that that's hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I prioritized, I actually have a girl that worked for another woman in town who retired and she has great design experience and a very different um, demeanor, I think, than what I have. She is brings another element to the table that I think is really nice and she's great with clients. I have a freelance team that's a little interesting. I have a fantastic architect that does all of my drawings, and she actually has an engineering background. And I totally appreciate what a stickler she is for details and how accurate she is about measurements and how I think sometimes my shoot from the hip thought process throws her and um, we kind of have a lot of fun together because we are so incredibly different. And then I have what I would consider the lifeblood, my freelance team is my stepsister, Kate, who worked for a design firm in LA for 14 years. And Kate and I have known each other our whole lives. And she is invaluable to me. She is attention to detail. She's got great experience. She's totally resourceful she's kind of the star behind the star in a way. She really Mm -hmm. is my backbone for me right now. What is she working on behind the scenes? She and I are both, um, well, we're both very involved in uh, a few larger projects, but she's able to see things and take a leading role in just 
getting on board with our architect and saying, okay, we need to lay this out. And here's where I see we have our holes for this exterior element and yeah, and keeping me on track as well. You know, I know some of the people working with you are freelancers, but this is a bigger team than you've ever had around you before, correct? That is absolutely true. And it scared me to grow. I was afraid. I kept thinking to myself, can I afford this? How am I going to pay everybody? What does that look like? And ultimately, I kind of had to grow in order to increase (laughs) revenue and also kind of stay on top of how much work I had. And um, this particular project that I'm working on right now is the biggest project I've probably ever had. And there's an incredible team of people on the project. The architect is amazing and a well-seasoned architect. And I am learning so much. And even though, again, it frightened me, I think you have to do things that scare you. Yeah. Um, Anne Sachs herself, who is probably one of my greatest mentors uh, in my life and has had a huge influence and impact on how I think about my business and creative process. She always used to say, you know, do something that scares you because isn't the alternative scarier? And I agree with her in a sense that if we don't do things that get us out of our routine or out of our box. And I say that to my kids all the time is that Mm -hmm. it's okay to be fearful because you're putting one foot in front of the other. And sometimes you're carving a path and, and that's new and, Mm -hmm. and is a little unchartered. And once you do it, you realize, okay, it's not that scary or, okay, I really didn't like that, or I would do it differently again. And all of those things are lessons to be learned. Totally. When did you start assembling this team that you have now? This was a COVID phenomenon. I, like a lot of designers, became incredibly busy. The entire world stayed at home and decided to renovate and redo their homes. So my business just kept growing and growing. And I think as a result of being small and being accessible, I have ended up with, you know, a lot of great clients and referrals and people that want to work with somebody that will answer the phone and will take your call and will respond. And um, that's where um, I think one of my greatest assets is, is the ability to, you know, be part of a team. I love to work with a team of people and I love my interaction with my contractors and even their subs to a certain degree. I think I've developed a certain amount of loyalty. I'll give you an example. The big project that I'm working on right now is in a pretty remote town in Montana. And in an effort to keep things expedited, the labor force in this small town was not necessarily as experienced with Mm high-end materials. And I was able to contact my tradespeople here in Denver mm-hmm. who are actually going to be end up working on the job and they're going to go to Montana and install tile and install carpet and install cabinetry. And I know that they wouldn't do that for just anybody. Yes, it's mm-hmm. a really nice project and it's a big project, but it's really a Herculean effort to be part of it. 
And I'm so grateful for those relationships that I've built mm-hmm. over the time, because I think we're all only as good as the people that can do the work alongside us. Mm-hmm. And being able to have that sort of treasure trove of individuals that are willing to support you mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the greatest aspects of my business. Designer Cesar Giraldo is a Gaganel fan and a proud Club 1683 member. For Cesar, joining Gaganel's exclusive VIP program was all about the support and trust of a partner that's committed to his firm. We're all in tune with the same vision, he told BOH, and he says he values the attention to detail and the opportunity to collaborate with Gaganel to deliver projects of perfection. To learn more about how you can join the club, visit gaganow.com US and click on For Professionals. You mentioned that having access to you and you know being able to give you a call is sort of part of the appeal for your clients, right? They want that connection. They want that relationship. How do you navigate that as your team is getting a little bit bigger? What does that look like as you grow? Well, it's empowering your team to be part of your process mm-hmm. and introducing them on the front end as the support person and contact mm-hmm. and keeping them in the loop on everything, which has been a learning curve for me as opposed mm-hmm. to I'll handle it and then I'll and then I'll I'll hand it off. And then ultimately by the time I have to hand it off and create all the paperwork to hand it off, I'm like, forget it, I'll just do it myself. So I had yeah. to really get out of that cycle of of that being my answer all the time. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really hard. I realize that I'm not going to be very good at my job if I don't have some support. So mm-hmm. it's bringing in those people on the front end. And luckily right now, most of the projects I have are a bit at the inception period or just you know ramping up. So I was able to bring in my team and say, okay, you're going to be the support person on these two projects. And my stepsister's the support project on these elements. And kind of divvying up who's going to work on what. And it's bringing them along to meetings, having them listen in on phone calls. Google Docs has been a game changer for me because people can access the paperwork. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like I'm constantly a student of this industry. And I never, ever want to stop being a student of design and architecture and resourcing because I don't think that I know everything at all. While I might be good at some things. There are other things that I feel like can constantly be refined or edited. And part of that process and how one works is, I think, a constant work in progress. Mm-hmm. I say, I mean, you mentioned that your process was really upended by, you know, sort of supply chain issues and sort of the new workflows that are kind of brought on by the pandemic. But how much is your process in flux or, or what's changing now? What's really changing now is that a lot of projects where you would start with drawings and floor plans and thinking about how you're going to use your spaces and live in a space has become a let's design the kitchen and order all our appliances before we have any idea where we're going to sit on a sofa, lay in a bed, put a cup of coffee down because those things that have longer lead times seem to be driving how we go about making decisions. And that is the part that kills me is how am I starting a project 
looking at a kitchen and thinking about appliances before I thought about the house as a whole. Yeah. And plumbers wanting to get plumbing ordered ASAP because valves are in short supply or trim takes four or five months to order in any kind of special finish. So while those architectural elements are always the first things to kind of get specified on a project, I feel like I'm having to make selections and specify them without thinking of the project as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that's been really difficult. Yeah. And that's been one of the greatest challenges with the supply chain issues. And I think we're working in a very reactive climate right now. Yeah. And that part is harder when you're trying to be creative and thoughtful about the process. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's a condition that we have to deal with right now. Mm -hmm. And like it or not, you can say, well, I'm not going to work that way, or you're going to, you know, you're going to have to wait. But sometimes construction timelines or budgets or they just don't allow for, you know, you to not be somewhat compliant to the project and its needs. I mean, did that change the way you chose who to bring onto your team then? Did it change? What does that change for you kind of in the day-to-day as you run your business? It hasn't changed how I, you know, decided to bring a team together, but it Mm -hmm. definitely has changed how I think about my vendors. Mm -hmm. And now on projects, I really only want to work with vendors that are partners that really want to help me succeed in my business and help me be successful with my clients. And I think that that being a good vendor is really, really important more than ever right now. And when I'm making product selections and material selections, I honestly am thinking about who is going to be the best, most reliable, honest partner, because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of vendors out there that would love to sell you stuff that don't necessarily have the integrity that some other vendors Mm -hmm. have. And I have to say, I'm discerning at the moment about who I want to partner with because I don't want to be set up for failure. How do you know? I mean, is it just about getting burned and saying, okay, I learned my lesson on that vendor? Or what's sort of the secret to figuring out who's going to be a good partner for you? Well, some of it is a little bit of tried and true. Mm -hmm. Who have I worked with through the years that has been reliable? And I know who the parent companies are. I know, I understand a lot about the manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. I'm able to ask questions if I call a vendor and say, hey, I've got a timeline. I understand that there's you know, an issue with certain color glazes right now for tile. Are you seeing that as a supply chain issue? Yes, no. Okay, great. Can we talk about the materials that are, you're not having a more difficult time sourcing and you're able to continue to produce sort of on a more as usual basis? Like, I'm willing to get in there rather Mm -hmm. than just sort of take my magic wand and say, I want this, I want that, this works. I don't think that we can just make selections haphazardly and hope for the best right now. I think we have to make much more thoughtful selections and be willing to ask questions 
about where things come from. Is that made here? Are there parts or components that are part of the process in order to make this piece of furniture that you're relying on coming from somewhere else? And what vendor is going to be upfront with me about their process or challenges? Mm -hmm. I do make a lot of my own furniture, mostly upholstery, some case goods, but mostly upholstery. And I have a wonderful workroom that I work with out in Los Angeles. And I'm so grateful for that partnership to which I would almost call a friendship at this point. (laughs) And I may even say to her, hey, I know you guys have access to some fabric lines, or if I send you some samples, can you tell me if you have something in stock that's similar that we could get sooner or that you could supply, like giving people the opportunity to rise to the occasion to be at Mm -hmm. their best, I think is always a good formula. People Mm -hmm. want to do right by you because they realize that you're going to give them repeat business Mm -hmm. because loyalty right now, I think is more important than ever. Mm -hmm. How much of those conversations, you know, calling the tile company and being like, what can you make right now? What isn't you know, hampered by supply chain challenges. How much of that conversation are you then passing along to your client? I think sometimes they're on a need to know basis. I have clients that don't necessarily care about where it's coming from. They sort of care. They sort of feel like that's up to me, yeah. um, you know, to kind of be in charge of the process. The Montana project that I'm working on right now, again, is a deeply creative opportunity where mm-hmm. I'm able to do a lot of custom work but they are not necessarily interested in what's not available. They're sort of interested in what's available. So I Mm -hmm. tend to keep them out of the dialogue with where everything's coming from. And my clients tend to rely on me and trust me to do my job. Mm -hmm. And I I don't have a lot of clients that necessarily want to be part of the while they're part of the selection process for sure, I don't know that they need to be part of the manufacturing process or the procurement process. Mm-hmm. And I kind of try to steer clients away from that because I think it then becomes them doing my job. And that's mm-hmm. ultimately not really the whole point of hiring an interior designer. How have you talked to them about some of the delays and some of the industry challenges that we're facing right now that may impact, you know, the timelines of their projects? Well, one of the biggest challenges I have come across uh, in the last month or so has been um, outdoor materials, Mm -hmm. like the sunbrella, perennials, just all the outdoor materials. Evidently, what I've learned is that either there's some manufacturing plants that have either completely shut down or there's an issue with obtaining fibers. And I've had a couple of selections that I made basically back in like April or May that have now had six or seven delays on them. And so essentially what I've done is gone to those clients and it's outdoor furniture for next year. So I've had a little bit of a buffer, but I've gone to them and said, the reality is, is that I've had kind of three or four delays at this point, And I'm uncomfortable with our selection Mm -hmm. and the timeline being unknown. And what I would like to do is present you with a new selection of materials of things that are in stock that are available to us now so that we can continue on with our 
order or furniture mm-hmm. order. And they were really amenable to that. I, I think that anytime you go to a client with a problem, you need to also have a solution. Yeah. I don't love the idea of only presenting problems mm-hmm. because what does that do for them? And you're kind of looking at them and they're looking at you thinking, great, you just threw up a bunch of flags and now I have no resolution. Mm-hmm. So I always feel like I need to go to somebody and have a solution. Mm-hmm. If there's really nothing but a roadblock and it's a delay and it's out of my hands, then you just kind of have to face the music and say, look, I have done my best to come up with an, a solution. I am out of some ideas because we have all kinds of procurement issues. And I think if we get out of the queue right now for this piece of furniture, we're only going to get into another queue for another piece of furniture that could potentially <laughs> take even longer. Yeah. I I can handle bad news. What I can't handle is dishonesty or no news and, um, or an update that is just not at all. You you clearly had information and you decided to withhold it. That I really have a hard time with. We're taking a quick break from the show to learn more about Side Door, the online marketplace that's for the trade only. Designers, there are three ways that Sidor can help you level up your firm. One, you can get a free account and instantly get access to trade pricing from top brands without having to worry about order minimums. Two, you can rely on Sidor's logistics team to handle customer service and make sure the product arrives on time. And three, you can curate a collection, share it on your website or social media, and earn 30% when your followers buy through you. It's all part of Sidor's mission to make designers more profitable in the digital age. Sign up today at onsidedoor.com. That's O-N-Sidedoor.com. I want to pivot for a second and talk about money. What has your approach been to charging for your work? My approach has actually been that I have found that charging hourly Mm -hmm. and keeping track of time is really what works best for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of people would couldn't believe that, but I feel like I can account for those hours. And sometimes when you charge a flat fee, it makes people wonder, well, some months are more hours than others. And I suppose it works itself out in the wash. But I've always had a hard time coming up with a flat fee that I felt like worked for a project. I either felt like it was too much or too little. Like after the fact, you looked back at it and were like, oh, I don't know if that was right. Okay. Yes, exactly. And I came across a program called Harvest. And I want to say maybe I even learned about it from Business of Home. But Harvest, is it's a way to track time. And my entire team can track their time per project. And then at the end of the month, I get a report. So I can sort of assess where everybody's spending their time. Mm-hmm. And that has been an enormous game changer for me. And if my clients want to question how we're spending time or why something took so long, I can go right back into Harvest, look at those notes and say, well, I had a two hour call here. This was a meeting prep. And I keep rather, you know, copious notes about how I'm spending my time. It's not just saying these two hours were for this project. It's these two hours were for this project. And in that time we did X, Y, and Z. Exactly. Okay. Because 
if I have a client come back to me and they want to question something, I want to have an answer for them. Mm-hmm. I know every client doesn't understand how much time it actually takes to get things accomplished. Even sometimes days where you're chasing things down and tracking items or trying to get something delivered to a warehouse and scheduling a delivery, all of that takes so much more time than one would think. Mm -hmm. And when you bill for it, they kind of almost can't believe it. But if you have all the notes that says, here's how we spent the time, it's really difficult for them to question it. Um, I don't work for Harvest. I'm giving them a, a <laughs> plug here, but it has been a game changer in how I can take care of expenses, travel, and managing a team's time. Mm-hmm. What is one thing you know now that you wish you had known from the beginning when you started your firm? I know now that mistakes are actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. Because there is so much to learn from a mistake. I know now that communication and asking questions and not taking everything at face value is really important. Understanding all of the layers and the elements when you are quoting, being quoted, sourcing, working with a showroom, I don't think I asked enough questions mm-hmm. and requested explanation as much as I do now mm-hmm. in the beginning. And then something would show up and you'd realize that you were missing a canopy and a chain and that it didn't come wired for US. And I made <laughs> a lot of assumptions that I do not make anymore. And that is the one thing that I spend a lot of time teaching my team about, which is ask questions, understand. To me, no has always been a suggestion. It's a jumping off point for a negotiation. And being a student of the process is a great concept. We all don't know everything about this business at all. What does success look like to you? Success to me looks like having fun along the way, having years and years of repeat business with clients, but most of all, the continued loyalty and support of the people whom I work with, Mm -hmm. both from a manufacturing and vendor standpoint, a client standpoint, and my office. Without the integrity of I keep using the word team, but without Mm -hmm. everybody feeling like they have a role and it's designated and they know what their expectations are, I think things fall apart. Mm -hmm. I had some really good advice from my trainer of all people who said, if you wanted somebody to come and mow your lawn and they'd never been to your house before and you told them, can you go mow my lawn? It might look a little different than if you said, hey, I'd love for you to go mow my lawn. Let me give you the address of my house, the garage code. Let me tell you where the lawnmower is. Let me tell you how to fill it up with gas. Let me tell you about some of the quirks of the lawnmower. Let me tell you about what to do after you've mowed the lawn and what to do with the grass clippings and how to dispose of them. And let me tell you about how to close the garage door. If you give somebody the tools 
you can have expectations for them. Mm-hmm. If you just make assumptions that they're going to know how to do something, you're setting them up for failure and you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Mm-hmm. That has been a very hard lesson for me to learn because I think that I instinctively will just say, go mow my lawn and expect that somebody <laughs> knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. So I have to become a better teacher and mm-hmm. provide better explanation and probably have a greater sense of patience and understanding that developing employees takes time. Mm-hmm. And it's no different than developing relationships with vendors or manufacturers that have taken time. And those are relationships that I cherish so much. So I need to also cherish my home team as much mm-hmm. and develop them. So to me, the success is in the development. Yeah. And the success for me is recognizing when I need to be the teacher and not throwing everybody in the deep end. And it's hard (laughs) for me. That has been probably one of my greatest challenges. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Thank you so much. This has been so incredible. Thank you. I so enjoyed our conversation. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, hear more great podcasts, check out new products, or browse job openings, head on over to businessofhome.com. If you have a note for the show or a story of your own to share, I'd love to hear from you. And you can email me at tradetales at businessofhome.com. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the show. Trade Tales is produced by me, Caitlin Peterson, and Fred Nikolaus. This episode was edited by Caroline Burke and Michael Castaneda. Our theme music is by Kyle Scott Wilson. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks.